iconic 60s singer Gary Puckett joins us to chat about his musical career and share some upcoming plans on episode 19, season 2 of Music Matters with Daryl Craig Harris. Hi, Gary Puckett. How you doing? <laughs> I'm doing well, Craig Harris. How are you? Good to see you. Good. So like we originally met, I think, gosh, it must have been end of the 90s. <laughs> it was a yeah, long time was way ago. back there. That's right. Yeah, I, I contracted some horns for you and then we were chatting and I ended up uh, playing with you for, I guess, what, over three years or about three years. And mm-hmm. I went to Cirque du Soleil. But um, so you you're actually you're down in Florida now, right? Clearwater, Florida. Yes, indeed. We love it down here. Kind of wanted to escape California and its politics. <laughs> so. Yeah, oh yeah, well, it's crazy. Um, where are you from originally? Born in Minnesota, a um, little town called Hibbing. Um, awesome. I, yeah. yeah, I was born in 1942. That tells you my age. Uh, my dad went off to, <laughs> to fight in World War II, and uh, my my grandparents came and got my mom and I, and we went to live with them in a little town called Pelican Rapids, which was um, basically um, oh, what what's the guy's name that was on the look uh, Norman Rockwell's America. Wow. You know, a little bitty right. town that had one stoplight, if that. Um, you know, in the corner drugstore and that sort of thing. And it was it was kind of the uh, the middle American sort of very relaxed way of life. But, um, you know, we, my dad came back from the war and we moved to Watertown, South Dakota for, I guess, about two years and then out to Washington State, where I really had my formative years, Yakima Valley. When did you um, first start singing and getting into music? Or did you have, was your family musical or how did, how did that happen? Yeah, they were musical. Um, they kind of really probably would have chosen a musical life, but um, you know, in 1946 or seven, whatever it was, you know that. Um, yeah, post-war years, a lot of changes. And- yeah, well, not only that, but tour buses were not anything like what they were to become. You know, so <laughs> that's yeah, that's true. Being on the road was cold and drafty and uncomfortable. You know, without uh, without the conveniences of of travel today. So they opted for a more normal way of life. And my dad started uh, working in the, the uh, advertising industry yeah. and, and did well. I mean, he worked his way up through the ranks, you know, started out as a window dresser basically and ended up managing department stores and things of that nature. But, oh, awesome. and, and that took years, of course, but though they were musical um, and went on to a different way of life, music stayed within our family because my mom was a very accomplished piano player. So my dad was a sax player. It's how they met. They were in a band called um, uh, the Dick Halverson Big Band. So that's how they met. And uh, he played sax. She played piano. And um, so uh, as we were growing up, piano remained. And my dad would drag out his sax every once in a while and kind of toot along, but he sort of lost <laughs> his uh, his lip. He lost his toot. <laughs> <laughs> I hate it when you lose your toot. Um, that's great. Like it's great to grow up with music in, in your household. And when when did you first start? Because you kind of started playing guitar and singing. When did that first happen for you? Well, uh, it really kind of goes back further. When I was about six, my mother sat me at the piano and said, "You're going to learn to play the piano." And like any six-year-old kid, I was really not interested 
in right. in studying, you know, and all that. I wish I had been because I'd be a true musician today. I'm self-taught and I can play a fairly good guitar, but oh, you're I, a great player. Well, no, uh, thank you, but <laughs> uh, my piano skills are pretty minimal. Um, but I've used piano to write a lot, and I've used guitar to write a lot. And right. uh, um, so it goes back to those days when I was sort of given that musical foundation. Um, my my parents were singers, and and that's why I'm a singer today. I inherited the qualities of their voices. Fortunately wow. for me, you know, and it uh, it 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 sounds like unlike i should say anybody else fortunately for me well yeah you know it's interesting because you do have a very unique style and it's it's i wouldn't say operatic but it's just a you have a big voice and that's kind of what you're known for so you kind of think that that came from your singing with your family and picking up their their vibe and their style well and their and their dna you know right well sure yeah both my mom and dad were very good singers uh, my dad was in barbershop quartet um oh. he was in a couple of quartets i remember the names one was the four dads the other was the four quarters and they used to come to the house just to practice and oh, I, would, awesome. I would sit enthralled you know um in the easy chair in the living room while they stood there like they were performing you know right. and sang their harmonies and barbershop harmonies were um i would That's almost, challenging yeah <laughs> yeah very very much so and i would also almost liken them to Beatles harmonies, because mm. when the voices, when the voices um, were kind of like that sibling um, thing, you know. Yeah, where it's really like really tight. Yeah, you heard overtones that just uh, you know, like the Beatles were able to get within their their harmonies and things, and and so I was always enthralled with that, and so I had I had kind of a an education as it were in the sound of harmonies and yeah. and I would go once in a while with my dad when they would go to their their barbershop competitions which were amazing oh, wow. as I recall right. them because you'd sit in an auditorium and there would be quartets there as the audience but they'd stand up if there was a break and they'd sing a song you know and it was, oh, fun. It was phenomenal <laughs> it was like a hoedown <laughs> exactly like one. Fun. yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, anyway that that sort of was on my mind plus uh you know i i when i was 15 i found a uh, a guitar an old spanish style guitar in my grandparents attic and that sort of started me on the uh on the guitar routine and i loved guitar because it had all kinds of romantic uh, uh connotations to me you know? well yeah i mean the beatles are happening all these great rock bands are happening in that time period right so you're like right. you're like that's a cool that's a fun instrument that's a fun instrument you know yourself. i wanted to attract the chicks you know no. exactly <laughs> i wasn't gonna say that but yeah there you go. <laughs> in a nice way of course right exactly yeah, you, can, you can croon, but, croon um, them yeah. you know that was an era that guitar became very prominent and you know Bill Haley and the Comets and that rock vibe, Elvis Presley, yeah. um, <clears throat> a little Richard. You actually, uh, and later down the road, you actually got a chance to meet Elvis. I, we'll talk about that. Yeah. I know I, it's funny because I, I do know your story, but a lot of people don't. So I want to. Yeah, I guy, right. Well, we have a history to, together, so, <laughs> so yeah, that's it's a cool all thing. Yeah, and there's I'll be obviously too. There's stuff I don't know. Um, so then you you grew up in Washington. You're playing guitar. You're singing, and then you ended up in San Diego. How how did that happen? Well, um, my dad had been transferred around um, when he started for the Allied uh, Merchandising Company in 
uh, Watertown, South Dakota. They transferred him out to Washington State. And we lived in Yakima Valley. And he went to work at a place called the Bon Marche. And as he's working his way up through the hierarchy, they transferred him to Tacoma. Uh, and that was in my fourth and fifth grades. And then they transferred him back to Yakima. Um, and so I went through, let's see, up through my third quarter of my 11th year in high school uh, back in Yakima Valley. And then they transferred him again to Twin Falls, Idaho. So that's where we were when I graduated from high school. Um, and he then was offered a job at an independent in San Diego in Pacific Beach, actually, uh, wow. called Mewling's Department Store. Yeah, that's quite a change from Idaho. <laughs> yeah, total change. Uh, Probably a welcome change. <laughs> yeah, well, it was it was pretty exciting, actually. I mean, I, I kind of grew up in smaller towns. You know, I think that Yakima Valley was only 20,000 people when we moved there. And I think it's still only 50 or 60,000, you know, but that's a big wine country up there now in Washington. Yeah, it's beautiful. Absolutely. Yeah, and it's a beautiful part of the world, a great, a great place for kids to to grow through their formative years because there were lakes and streams and, and, uh, yeah. you know, uh, rivers, there was fishing and hunting and all the things that I think are applicable and, and um, uh, just wonderful things for, for young boys. Um, my dad would take right. me fishing. He'd take me hunting. I mean, I, I had guns, I had fishing poles, I had all that kind of stuff, you know, that I That's learned awesome. how to ski up there, you know? Uh, yeah. Um, where was it? Uh, White Pass, Snoqualmie Pass. Ended up on the um, on the ski patrol, as a matter of fact, and oh, it was wow. a pretty exciting thing, you know, because I I started learning to ski before they had any technology whatsoever for right. bindings and skis, and I mean, it was just <laughs> beginning, you know, yeah. to have metal edges and things, you know. So yeah, I, I know. A lot, actually, a lot of the soldiers came back from World War II and they got into skiing over kind of in Europe or whatever, and that I know they brought that with them too. Some of that. Um, it's interesting. Yeah. That, that's such a great, you know, it's funny when we get older, we don't, sometimes we don't appreciate that kind of life, the growing up when you're there, but mm -hmm. as you get older, you realize how special it really was, oh, you know, absolutely. as you get out in the world and realize how things are, and <laughs> you know? Yeah, it's true. Things have changed so radically from when we were kids. I know I'm quite a bit older than you are, but, uh, um, you got a couple, I, I'm catching up. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, unfortunately not fast enough for me. <laughs> oh, wow. There you go. So you, uh, so you're in San Diego, you're, you're down there. And then, um, did you, did you form a band? How did you get into music down there and, and get that kind of rolling? I know you were playing clubs eventually, but how, how did I get started for you? Well, let's see, to go back, my, my dad was offered that job in San Diego. So they wanted me to to move down there and start college, you know? So okay. I went down, I came down to Southern California to Vista and, and stayed with my aunt and uncle, my, my mother's sister um, and brother-in-law. So uh, I started San Diego City College and they wanted me to go on to higher education and, and I was gonna give it my best shot, you know? But music was in my, heart and soul, really. Right. Um, and, and I'm thinking to myself, I, I've had 12 years of school, I don't want to do any more school. This is enough for me. I'm done. Yeah, music's fun. <laughs> Music is fun. Yeah, so, sure. Pardon this congestion I have. I, I Forgive me. It's early in the day. And I tried to stuff some breakfast down my throat before we started here. Anyway, oh, no um, 
it, 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 I, I thought that I would study and end up someplace in psychology. Um, they, they were touting dentistry and I don't even remember why. You know? <laughs> I said, that's not something that interests me working that in somebody's mouth. I thought, well, if they want me in medicine, maybe I can, you know, go towards psychology, criminal psychology or child psychology, both interests. Sure. So yeah. I took general courses and found myself you know, hating a lot of it because it just wasn't of interest to me. And when I was a student, um, I recall that I always did well in something that interested me. If it didn't interest me, I just, I was a lagger, you know, I right. just did, didn't do well. You know, so, uh, I think a lot of a lot of creatives are like that. You need to you need to really have a passion for it. You can't. It's hard for creative people to just go through the motions if they don't feel it. Do, sure. do, do you kind of have you found that? Right. And when people ask me today, what would you recommend to these young musicians today? I always say, go for your passion. You know, right. and if it is dentistry, please go for dentistry. You know, because you're going to be happy doing that if it is your passion. Um, right. Anyway. That aside, um, you know, I just I wasn't wasn't happy studying, and there was a point where I I started working in the local bands, you know, and we had a twelve piece band called the Ravens. It was fantastic. We had four singers. We had uh, we had blacks. We had Hispanics. We had whites. Awesome. We were a uh, you know we we were a uh, um, what do you call it. Uh, uh, you know, an equal opportunity band. <laughs> yeah. and, you know. Well, it's funny, yeah, because San Diego and Southern California, even back then, it was very integrated, right? You had you had people from all different cultures, and well, San Diego is only forty miles from the Mexican right. border, you know, so exactly. uh, it was easy for us to 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 be equal opportunity, as it were. And right. you know, I found myself hanging with some of the blacks and some of the Latinos and and that kind of stuff, and. Uh, it never occurred to me that we shouldn't or wouldn't or couldn't, right. you know, um, and the band was fantastic. We had four singers and a rhythm section, a few horns and, you know, except we found out pretty easily and soon afterwards that we could only make about five bucks a piece. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah. per, even, per, even then it was hard to make money. Per performance, yeah. you know, sort of. <laughs> so, so anyway, um, you know, that that was cut down at some point to four or five pieces. And, sure. and it stayed that way because we found that we could actually work and we were getting jobs in San Diego. And it's a military town. So we were right. able to work for the enlisted men's clubs and the EM clubs had lots of dances and things and we loved awesome. to play the rock and roll and the dance music, you know? So yeah. we had a pretty good band and we were able to rock the enlisted men, you know? So they invited yeah. us to the, yeah, it was hopping down there. Yeah. They had all the clubs and uh, yeah. it's kind of like San Francisco too. You had all the, all the guys, sailors wanted to party and have fun and, yeah. So we were working for the Marines and the Navy and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And it was a lot of yeah. fun. Um, but there came a point, you know, when you, you, you start growing up a little bit more, you know, we were right. young and bulletproof kind of thing and, and doing <laughs> what, you know, youngsters like to do, which is stay up all night and, you know, try to, yeah. try to be cool and all that girls kind of and parties. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All the fun stuff. Yeah, but there came <laughs> a point, you know, when, um, when actually uh, becoming a better musician, becoming uh, I, I, it was easy for me to be a singer. It's God's gift to me, you know, to sing. And right. I never knew that. 
In fact, as a little sidelight to that, my, my parents used to, when we were just children, uh, used to rent a tape recorder and they would record messages to my grandparents who lived in Minnesota still. Yeah, and uh, my mother, they would make little yellow record, little tiny things. They were, they were only about this big, just smaller mm. than a 45, you know, and they'd send these records that they could play on their, their little music machine, whatever it was. Sure. And I remember uh, I, I found one where I was singing Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer in this perfect little soprano way up high in the sky voice. And my mother one day said to me, I mean, now way into adulthood, she said, I just always thought that all seven-year-old boys could sing like that. It's just funny, natural yeah. to me, you know, sure. because we were singers and you sang and it's not like we had, you know, so anyway, um, it's God's gift to me. I just have to keep it healthy which I'm right. pretty fortunate to do. But uh, anyway, I was becoming a better singer, a better player. I was working in these groups and, and we were, we were popular in town because we could play the music and all that kind of stuff. And there, there was a guy there who owned a club called the quad room. He also owned a place called the chuck wagon, which was uh, a buffet. And it was fantastic. It was down close to MCRD, the naval training and all that stuff, you know. And so it, it was filled with uh, uh, service people. And sure. so there were clubs down there, you know, and we ended up working in a place that I can't remember the name of it now, but they kind of would bring in people like Dick and Dee. Right. You know, yeah. Uh, they all the stars of the day. Yeah. The Rivingtons. Papa, who, mama, mama, papa, who, mama, mama, you know, I know and, we love that stuff. <laughs> and we were the house band, you know, so we had to play. Awesome. Behind. Yeah, and it was cool. So we had to play behind these people and it was fun and it was daunting because, you know, I didn't think of myself as being that great. You know, right. but uh, it's almost like being a session guy, like you're, you're all you don't know who's going to come up next and you're going to play with radio. Exciting, exactly yeah. true. So at, at some point, though, um, we became a four piece band that was uh, really very good. And we're, we were uh, working in a club called Harold's Club. And this guy that owned the quad room and owned the chuck wagon uh, was looking to put a band together that he could call his own. Oh, okay. um, and, and he came and he saw me and the bass player, Bobby Brown. And uh, uh, Unbeknownst to us, he had been going around and he found a drummer by the name of Tommy Kendall. And one day he called us all three together at his office above the chuck wagon. And he said, uh, I want to put you guys together and I want to give you a job in my club. And we knew it was like the hippest club in San Diego or one of the hippest. Um, right. And um, it was in a bowling alley. So you had to enter the club through the bowling alley doors and there were sure. 52 lanes. And nobody thought anything of that until we started walking in in Union Soldier outfit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So tell, tell me my head on myself right there. Uh, yeah. Okay, you know, we'll uh, there. <laughs> so so we had this meeting with Mr. Khan, and uh, he was he was kind of a benevolent guy, but a good guy. You know, he right. was. Um, uh, the, the club was set up to have go-go girls and the two girls were beautiful. They were fantastic dancers and they dressed in these skimpy little outfits, but it, so that, it, that's was, a nothing, yeah. it was nothing seedy. It was all about right. the yeah. go-go uh, yeah, yeah. era. Fine. You know? right. And um, 
I recall them. Uh, he said, uh, let's get together here. I want to hire you guys. You're going to be my trio. You're going to be in my club. I'm going to pay you. And I think we were each making about 350 bucks a week. That's a lot of money back in 1964, then. Yeah. I think. Yeah, you could buy a car for a couple thousand dollars. I was renting a three-bedroom house. I had a yeah. fairly new Thunderbird. I mean, you know, um, I was doing quite well. As a matter of fact, all three of us were, you know. So uh, um, we had a good time there for about two years. And the club was really set up nicely. It had a bar on either side of the, the room. And there were booths. And it had the, the sparkle ball in the middle, you know. And the stage was cool. And the, the two go-go yeah. uh, girls on either side, you know. Yeah, I want that, I want that gig now. It sounds like fun. <laughs> yeah, it was great fun. It was absolutely great awesome. fun. And um so, uh, you know, during that period as a trio, we played the Stones, we played the Beatles, we played right. all the stacks group, you know, all the R&B, uh, you know, Booker T and the MGs, you know, Steve Cropper and, and you know, Eddie yeah. Floyd and all that. You know that stuff. It's I know, all the, all the music we love. <laughs> yeah, you know, so that was all good. Um, and there came a point, actually, with this band, which... I kind of lamented. Um, I think there was a little mental anguish with a couple of the members and mostly with the drummer, Tommy. Um, he, I think he had kind of an alcohol problem. And I'm saying this with love because I love, I loved the guy a lot. He was a great right. drummer and, yeah. you know, and the bass player was a great bass player. None of us could read music. We were just all self-taught get together in the garage and let's learn, you know, and, but those are good days, right? You kind of, you kind of miss those days where it's I just, you go and bang. Yeah. yeah they were great days. And, you know, the people just immediately hit the dance floor and um, we, we had waiting lines every night of the week, six nights a wow. week. And uh, it was great. But the two guys, the, the bass player, the drummer were very uh, at odds with each other oftentimes. And I found myself being the go between. Okay, guys, yeah. hold on. You know, you know, let's not mess up our gig. <laughs> yeah, we're making great money. We're having great fun that, you know, we're young people, like I said, bulletproof and ready to take on the world, you know, that kind of thing. And, um, but it's they, always the bass player. <laughs> <laughs> always well, the drummer. In this case, it was more the drummer. <laughs> well, yeah, okay. There you go. <laughs> but they were fighting all the time about who would call the song, who was the leader, you know, and finally, right. said, guys, you really got to quit this, you know, and I would end up chasing them outside sometimes saying, hey, hold on, you know, there's no reason to go to fisticuffs. This is just right. wrong, you know. So there came a point when I actually said, listen, guys, I'm out of here. You know, I'm, I'm going to move on and uh, do something else because you guys just can't seem to. Right. You just can't get along, you know. So and that's when I went. That's when I learned what it was like not to make a living because I hadn't really saved a lot of money. I did have a fairly new car. I was married at the time. We had bills. Yeah. We had, you know, and it, it took me about four months, maybe more to find the right guys who said, yeah, we'll go with you. And uh, um, I came up with the core of the band that was going to be called the Union Gap uh, Kerry Chater on bass guitar. Actually, he played um, he played Rhodes piano with uh, the Rhodes piano oh, right. bass. Right. And yeah. um, kind of like the Doors. Yeah. And he was right. He was working with a guy by the name of Gary Witham, who played uh, saxophone. And both of them were 
were not only talented, they were schooled. They read music, oh, okay. they wrote music, they were, right. you know, and um, uh, they were working with a guy by the name of Peter Carrillo, um, who was a good drummer. Um, ultimately, Peter and I didn't get along. And so I let him go for Paul Wheatbread, who became a member of this group that I called Gary and the Remarkables, for lack of a better name. But it was a working <laughs> title, you know, sure. and... Uh, brought Dwight Bement along with me from the the out or from the Ravens prior to the Outcasts, and uh, um, so we were a five piece band, and we went to to rehearse January of 1967 in my garage, which was uh, an experience, you know, because I'm I'm going. I'm going to take this group someplace. I don't know where right. it is. I want to record. I want to go on the road. I want to work with the Beach Boys. You know, I want right, to work right, yeah. with Paul. And that's Rear a great, I mean, that era, that 67, like that's such a great area, era in music, right? Mm -hmm. There's all these great bands and people that you ended up working with later, yes. which is, which is awesome that we, we both worked with. Right. Um, yeah. So, so I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> I just, I love that. <laughs> Quite all right. You're, 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 you're allowed to interject. Any old I know. I just love that. Yeah. Um, it was a great era. And like I said, we were playing all the music of the era. Um, so we needed to get enough repertoire together that we could work in the clubs once again, because a couple of the guys were married. We all had uh, responsibility, you know, and we were no longer children. We were in our early twenties, mid twenties, whatever. And, uh, um, so we got a repertoire together and then I thought to myself, well, let's see, we've got to get an agent, maybe somebody that can book us. And I was thinking of it in relation to a business. How do right. we go about focusing this in some way, you know, so that I can, can make it, I can propel it forward in an organized way, you know? So, right. uh, um, found a guy up in uh, the Los Angeles area at a little agency. Can't remember the name of it, but the owner of the agency was an old trombone player uh, from the big band era. And oh, fun. he had a young guy uh, in his office. I don't remember if uh, Bob himself, uh, the young guy was a, a musician or not, but he was a willing uh, agent who said he would come down. Yeah, accomplice. Yeah, <laughs> a good word. You know. There you go. Yeah, I'm very familiar with music terms. <laughs> anyway, go ahead. That's great. So um, I um, talked to a guy at a club called Harold's Club in National City, where we had worked as as the Ravens uh, four piece band, and it was down at the Navy Yards. It was kind of a funky club, very dark. Um, kind of a tough, raucous club, you know, one right. of those where you wanted to be careful with who you Yeah, because that's to actually and, on the border. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> it's close to that area. Right. And, you know, the, the sailors down there, they were, they, were, they were letting off steam from time to time, you know, and uh, there were a lot of Navy wives and, you know, they, they, were, they were trying to, you know, I don't know, so I'm trying to be kind here in the whole thing, but 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 it was, it was club, a good place to party <laughs> yeah and harold's club liked <laughs> us you know we worked there for a while sure so i i talked to uh the uh the owner of the club and he said yeah you can come and audition in in the afternoon sometime so we did and the agent said well you guys are okay um you know not that good but i'll see if i can get you a job so he booked us in a place in van nuys called cappy's and it was a little tiny hole in the wall club in Van Nuys. And um, he wanted really a three piece band, but this guy, Bob Zevers talked him into 
hiring a five-piece band. And the guy fired us after three days because there were no people in the club and he was paying more money than he wanted to. And so we went on to work in a club in Seattle, which was where I finally got the idea because I'm thinking all along, how can we do this? What are, what are we going? Yeah, you're trying to you're trying to find a hook to get people interested in the band. And that's the way to put it exactly. Um, yeah. So, as as we're going, and I'm thinking, what are we, what are we supposed to look like? You remember what we were all wearing on the street in those days from, um, what what do we call them? Platform shoes, right? Yeah, you know, to uh, <laughs> fringes. Yeah. And bell bottoms and hip huggers and paisleys and velvets and tie dyes and you got the, the hippie slid. thing is hitting hard. <laughs> yeah. And we started putting the holes in our jeans and sure. stuff, you know, and, and it seemed to me like every time we went to see a band, they were looking grungier and grungier all the time. Right. You know, and nobody was dressing. And I thought, you know, maybe there's a way we can dress for the stage and, and be different than everybody else out there. And I had for a long time, even though I was, you know, still pretty young, I had had an interest in the civil war history of the United States. In fact, our visitors from New York, um, he is a civil war buff of all things. He has a collection of civil war items. That's probably worth $2 million. And, wow. it, and it goes into museums and things like that. And he sure. lectures about that era. You know, he knows more about President Lincoln, you know, than, yeah. than all the educators in the country put together. I mean, this guy is phenomenal. <clears throat> At any rate, I thought, there's an idea. We'll wear a Union soldier outfit. I was born in the North. So that <laughs> that qualifies That's a good, for blue. You, you, yeah, you chose a good side. <laughs> good choice there, Gary. <laughs> yeah. And I like blue, you know. So that's good, you know. So yeah. and then I went Union Soldier. Aha. I grew up in the Yakima Valley, which is a valley in the southeast corner. The river and the railroad come through the valley, and that's Union Gap. Ah, there you I go. went Union Soldier, Union Gap. I went, guys, I got it. I know what we're going to do. And I told them they fell about, they thought it was the stupidest, funniest thing (laughs) they ever heard. Literally. I mean, they were laughing, capping on it, joking on it, you know, and those were the days when we were just starting to let our hair down, you know, and the Beatles style and all that stuff, you know, and that was one of the things with Peter, the original drummer. He just didn't get it with the hair down thing. And he was always doing the big pompadour, you know, and all that. Right. Yeah. He's trying to break out. Of the 50s. Yeah, and he wouldn't want to wear the hat, you know, and all that stuff. So I said, guys, this is what we're going to do. Follow me or not. You know, this is it. So we went from this club in Seattle, which was uh, it was a topless club and it was funky. I mean, you know, these right. clubs were you know, you saw fights in these clubs and things. Yeah. And we, uh, we worked in a club in um, <clears throat> San Jose where the, the gypsy jokers 
and the hell's angels used to come in and they would be on opposite sides of the club, right. you know, and we were just and you're on stage going, yeah, oh. I'm playing guitar with my fingers crossed, you know, trying this hoping that they didn't collide in the middle of yeah. the dance floor and stuff. So anyway, those clubs were, they were, they were a bit dangerous at times. Yeah. So you guys, you guys earned your dues and those, <laughs> you've been there, you know, it. you, you, yeah. oh, yeah. it, you know, so we, uh, we went from Seattle to Portland to another topless club which is called the long, long branch. And it's, it was exactly that a big, long, long club. The dance part was at this end. The topless part was at the other end, which was good, you know, because we weren't too distracted by, <laughs> I was going to say, it'd naked. be a little hard to play guitar and sing when you got, you know, when you're in your middle twenties, you know, it's hard to not be distracted by. Naked right. And, women, and that's, you know? that's like, you're thinking like, this is the best gig ever. <laughs> How did I get so lucky? I get paid. And then, uh, yeah. <laughs> Jeez, oh man. So anyway, we went from that club. Um, and these were all booked by this little agent up in the Los Angeles area. We went from there to Vallejo. California. And it, it was another topless club. And we didn't know that it was, we played the first set and we were rocking and doing our thing. And by now we're pre getting pretty good because yeah. we've been together for some weeks, you know, and we had, uh, we had experienced not only the rehearsals, but the getting it together in front of the crowd, yeah, just being on stage. And, yeah, playing and, too. and you know, that's where it really comes together because right. the, you know, the focus is on you and you want to be as good as you can. At any rate, um, we played the first set, I remember, and it was a great set and we had a really good time. And the, the second set we got up there, we start playing and, you know, two girls come up on either side and whip off their shirt. And I'm going, oh, no, you know, and it's, you know, I'm trying to be blinded, you know, <laughs> keep my eyes forward and all that kind of stuff. So anyway, from there, I took the guys and went to a place in Los Angeles called western costume and that's where you still go i understand if you're making yeah it's still the movie place to get to get different kinds of themed costumes if you're going to have a big crowd and you want them dressed for an indian war a world war ii uh, an alien movie uh, something where everybody needs to you know get their costumes that's where they go and yeah <clears throat> went in there and i said uh, how much does it cost to have you guys make us outfits that are union soldier period 1861 1865 mm. and they were so expensive we couldn't between us afford one right so i said well may i may i rent one and they said sure so i rented one for me and uh got the proper fit and then i took the guys from there at some point in the near future went to tijuana oh okay because in those days um you could get very nice upholstery yeah, and all that stuff done for not hardly any money. <laughs> you know, very, very inexpensive. And you could get really, really nice tailoring down there for inexpensive as well. So right. I looked around and uh, <clears throat> found a little tailor, spoke no English. I spoke no Spanish. But the guy next door, he looked like he was kind of a Caucasian-ish Latino type. And he had red hair and, you know, maybe Ireland. I don't know. But he, right. he looked like he, you know, he spoke a little English. He said, I'll, I'll speak for you, you know? So I walked in, he didn't have to, I held the jacket up, the tailor nodded his head and measured us up, you know? It's like, I got you. <laughs> did a fabulous job. And I put the rest of the 
outfit together in the U.S. You know, at Flag right. Brothers Boots or whatever it was, <laughs> some braid on the on the the, the 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 pants, and had hats made that were really authentic, kind of uh, you know the ones with the patent leather bill right. and the cross swords and all that. And funny part was, I was supposed to be the general. I could only find second lieutenant bars. <laughs> it worked looked, out okay. <laughs> we looked good, you know. We looked good, and we went to yeah. work back in the quad room. And at first, people went, "Here comes Paul Revere and the Raiders again." You know, <laughs> it's your history, correct, folks? You know? Right. Yeah. But pretty soon, it caught on, and people really loved the look on stage, you know. And they they came to the club every night by nine thirty, and we had a waiting line till twelve thirty. And awesome. we. Uh, so the word, word was getting out. Word was getting out. It was a great band and it was a great vibe and everything was happening. So that's when I actually put the, the portfolio together and took pictures and put lyrics that I had written in the portfolio along with a right. demo that was not the Union Gap, but it was me singing right. and went to all the record companies in Los Angeles and Found most of them sort of sidestepping the issue, you know, oh, yeah, great, great outfits, great, uh, nice voice, all that, you know, but they would go. You're a nice kid. Come yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you what, go down the hallway and you'll, you know, exactly, talk yeah. to, uh, you know, and there came a point after a week or something on the streets of L.A. that I just said, guys, let's go home. I'm tired. You know, I, we got to go back to work anyway in the quad room. And so <clears throat> going down Sunset Boulevard and. It said uh, Highway 405, uh, you know, a quarter of a mile up the road. And I saw a sign that said CBS. I went, fellas, stop the car. I'm going to go inside. I'll be right back. I'm sure I will be right back. Yeah. Cop comes, go around the block. I'll be right back. So I went inside and the lady was, <clears throat> it was the old phone system of pulling and plugging and, you know, that whole thing, mm -hmm. the Lily Tomlin routine, you know, one ringy ding. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, I stood there at her window for a minute and she said, yes, young man. And I, I was so discouraged at this point. I said, you wouldn't want to hear a new band, would you? Hoping. <laughs> That's <laughs> a way to pitch a band, Gary. Yeah, really, I know. <laughs> Hoping she would say, go home, young man, eat, yeah. sleep, you know, go in and get prepared to come back. She said, hey, uh, wait a minute. And she unplugged and plugged and said something. She said, go down that hallway over there, go to the end, go to the right. Go to the second door, you'll find a guy by the name of Jerry Fuller. So I first went to the front door and I waved at the guys and said, go around the block. You know, so they went around the block. I went down the hallway and I the door was open and I looked in and he's pounding a nail in the wall or something like that. And I said, excuse me. And he says, hey, come on in. You know, so I walked in. I said, what are you doing? He said, I'm putting up a gold record award. And I said, I have never seen a gold record award. May I see it closely? <laughs> so, he said, sure. So I walked up and looked at it. It was Ricky Nelson. Oh, wow. He said, um, it's a song I actually wrote for Sam Cooke, but Sam didn't want it. Um, Jerry's, or, or uh, rather, uh, Ricky's people were walking by at the moment and happened to hear it, and they liked it. So wow. they took it to Ricky. Ricky recorded it. It sold 4 million copies. I said, fantastic. It was called Traveling Man. Right. Yeah. Great song, you know. <laughs> great, great. Tune. And I just love the tune. You know, I was a big fan. I used to watch Ricky 
on his TV show, you know, yeah. you know, I love the Nelson family and that whole vibe. Yeah, you know, it was, that's so, good stuff. Yeah. yeah, it was great fun. So, and I always waited for those last three or four minutes, you know, when he would introduce his new record and that kind of stuff, you know, with Burton Cummings on guitar and, you know, the great right. band that he had, you know. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that, that's like, it's funny because isn't that, it's so uh, like sort of, they always say the stars aligning, but for you to be able to actually meet somebody like, like Jerry, and be able to just walk in. I mean, like that never happened. So obviously fate fate was looking out for you. That well, that's day. absolutely true, you know, because yeah. we even went to the oldies guy, Art LeBeau, and we found right. out that Art LeBeau's office was a P.O. box. <laughs> <laughs> Funny. <laughs> so we never got to talk to Art, of course, you know. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, we went everywhere to, to try to, you know, show somebody that portfolio. Right. And uh, Jerry looked at it and he went, wow, yeah, I love the outfits. And he listened to the demo and he says, nice voice. He said, where can I see this band? You know, he had also produced the Knickerbockers. You remember the Knickerbockers? Yeah. yeah. Great record called Lies. Mm -hmm. I thought it was the Beatles when I first heard it. Great. Yeah, he, I mean, Jerry Fuller, like for people that don't know, he was a legendary guy. I mean, he went on even after this meeting. It's such a huge list of songs and. And production and it's it's pretty amazing well he's responsible i understand i mean if you look him up on you know wikipedia or something i mean he sold like 130 million records tapes cds right. etc you know and he's worked with everybody from johnny mathis and john davidson to the knickerbockers and gary puckett and the union gap and whoever right. else he worked with you know oh yeah because you guys i mean you guys have sold 20 million records right it probably even even now it's beyond that but it's beyond that by now i mean we yeah. still get a good royalty every six months you know so that's a nice right. thing uh but uh the great thing is he produced records for me and the group that have really withstood the test of time nothing right. nothing dates those songs you know he came from kind of the singer and song sort of big band era thing right yeah because those songs i mean the songs he did with you i mean and we talked about this before i mean because we've known each other forever but the stuff he did with you the arrangements the strings i mean it was a it was a basically an orchestra right on on young girl and lady i mean it's so when when you when he actually came down and saw you guys did, how did how did that did that all happen pretty quickly when he decided to to get involved and sign you guys and well yes it did as a matter of fact he he had been hired by cbs so uh they weren't cbs sony quite yet he had been hired by columbia records um to write to find talent and produce hit product. Oh, awesome. So I think he immediately saw the potential in the portfolio, you know, the right. voice, the look, the whole thing. He said, where can I see the band? And I said, well, we're working at a club called the quad room. It's in the Claremont bowl in Claremont, which is a suburb really of, of uh, San Diego. Right. And he said, um, I'll come down and see you on Saturday night. So through the following week, um, I only did about 50% of the singing, hoping to stay in good voice for Saturday right. night, you know, because normally I did 80, 85% of the singing from nine till two. And that's yeah. somewhat of a load. That's a long night. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So uh, um, it was Friday night. Um, we were playing and uh, I'm thinking to myself, he's going to show up tomorrow night and it uh, feels like I'm in pretty good voice. And midnight, we take our break. 
and I'm just about to step off the stage and he walks up and looks up at me and I looked down and I almost didn't recognize him. And I went, wait a minute, you're supposed to be here tomorrow night. And he said, <laughs> I just sneaky. thought, yeah, sneak. I said, he said, I that, just thought that's I actually a smart, that's a smart A&R move. Very smart. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. He, he said, he said, let's, he says, I just wanted to catch you off guard. Yeah. I said, well, you did. I hope that I was, uh, you know, and, uh, so, so we walked outside and, uh, into the bowling alley, which was the front door of the club and, and sat in a booth like any of the bowlers would do or anybody sure. else would do, you know, to have a drink or to just sit and chat or whatever. And, um, he said, great band, great voice. He said, let's go make a record. Wow. And I said, yes, this is, <laughs> This is what it's all about, you know? So, um, so, uh, he said, I have to go back to LA of course, and, and deal with the powers that be. Mm -hmm. So I'll come back at some point in the next, whatever, four to six weeks and bring you contracts to sign. So, uh, you know, that evening we were kind of flying high going, Whoa, it looks like something could be happening here, you know? So, uh, we waited patiently and uh, continued our job there at the quad room. And he came back. I can't recall how long it was later. I think it was a, about May when he came back to see us. Uh, so we had started rehearsing in January, uh, went back to work in the quad room after that run up to Seattle and down through California and all right. and getting the portfolio together. And uh he came back, we signed contracts sitting in the bowling alley in the booth. <laughs> no uh, legal representation. We should have. Right. Yeah. No, know. but nobody had that then. <laughs> I guess not. Yeah. Fortunately, it's, it's, it was CBS though, and they were a fairly honest company. Yeah. And he, I mean, he, that guy, he had a great reputation too, I think, from what I know. Absolutely. But I, um, so when you, when you first go in to record, I mean, did you have hits right out of the gate? How did that, how did that happen for you? Well, he, he said, I've got a song in my hand. He said, uh, it's written by a couple of guys from Nashville. Uh, it was recorded by a group called Tom Paul and the Glazer brothers. And he said here, in fact, is the record. He said, listen to it, but we're going to change it up a little bit because this is a country record and we're going to make a pop record. So, um, <clears throat> he said, uh, you know, it, it went woman, woman, have you got cheat now in your mind? You know, was, <laughs> y'all <laughs> didn't have that. Whoa, 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 man. that right. kind of line wasn't in there, you know? So, yeah. um, that was pretty much his idea to do that, but he brought in a man by the name of Al Capps, who not the cartoonist, but, uh, right. the arranger and he just, I think, did a superior job. Yeah, it's such a gorgeous arrangement. And I, you tell the story of standing in the studio in the middle of the orchestra surrounding you. What would, that must have been, I mean, going from playing in clubs and, you know, around California to doing that must have been just amazing. It was truly, <laughs> yeah, truly amazing. I, I uh, sort of told a brief version of that story on Sirius recently. I was well, I was asked to do a little guest DJ spot on Sirius. And in fact, oh, that's me to do a second one. So sometime awesome. in May or June, I'll let you know when it is. And maybe you can yeah. uh, push it out there to people if they want to hear Absolutely. me on Sirius. But um, so, yeah, um, I told a, a short version of that. It was, 
it, it was interesting. I mean, to say the least, and it was exciting because I'm going, I'm walking into a studio that is a legitimate, fantastic studio. I mean, you could right. have had a hundred piece orchestra in that everybody in the world is recorded at. And- yeah. And they, they curtained off half of the studio and still had 30 pieces in there, you know, and it was in a big circle, you know, the strings over here and the rhythm section over here and the keyboards in a certain place and the percussion in a certain place. And, you know, it was all set up according to the technology of the day and how. They yeah. Did. And this is sort of, this is right in the wrecking crew era, right? That's in, it's in that same time, time. Exactly. Exactly. That era. They weren't known as the wrecking crew yet. Uh, they were yet right. to name them that. Uh, in fact, I've never come to know how they were named that but i'm gonna have to get, google that and see if that'll come up. i actually just i just interviewed danny tedesco tommy tedesco's son who and he uh, did the did the film the wrecking crew we talked about that and uh, that's such a great story like i mean and it's funny because when you do those kinds of things later down the road you realize how special i mean obviously it's special having the orchestra there but also these guys that are playing with you are also legends in their own, in their own right. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> it's and, amazing. You know, they all being the advanced sorts that they were as musicians and players and, and their experience and all that, you know, they would have five drum sets and right. they'd have a carding cartridge company, you know, come and take it and set it up and ready for them. And they'd go from this session, you know, to the next yeah, one. It was a whole machine. It was a machine. <laughs> yeah. It was truly a machine. Um, so at any rate, yeah, it was an amazing day. I walked in and, you know, I came and said hello to Jerry and the control booth and they were getting it all set and testing things and all that. And, um, the arranger was there setting things up and I walked around chatting with a few of the musicians, not knowing any of them, of course, you know, except for the union gap members that were there and they all played on the session. Um, as I recall, they just weren't the only ones. For instance, Carrie Chater, who was our bass player and quite accomplished and read music, sat next right. to Carol Kay. Awesome. I mean, that must have been exciting for him. It was <laughs> just exciting for him. Her. And they the read girl, the same. They played on the Beach Boys stuff and played on all this. Yeah, it's crazy. Right. And, and they read the same chart and they mixed their sounds together. So we had a great... Awesome. Great bass sound, and uh, right. Gary Witham, I know, was in the horn section, uh, as well as Dwight Bement. Um, awesome. Paul Wheatbread, I'm pretty sure, was playing something percussive, because Hal Blaine was on that yeah, session, sure. you know, and many of the other wrecking guys, um, yeah. but, uh, and Glenn Campbell was there, and Howard Roberts was there, and, yep. you know, just, just those people who were the number one call. Well, and you hear that on that record. I mean, those, like you said, those those records, all the stuff that you did, still really sounds amazing. I mean, the I mean, your voice obviously, but also all the arrangements, and it's just you were so fortunate to be able to have that such a quality thing that he put together for you, right? With Jerry and, and that whole, it's amazing. No doubt about it, because yeah. all these years later, if I'm fortunate enough to hear it in the grocery store. You know, and every once in a while that happens to me and I go, you know, and I'll just stop and listen. And it sounds great. Yeah. It's a great recording. You can you can put it next to the other great recordings of the world, basically. Right. Because those are the same people playing on the Beach Boys records. They were the same people playing with Sonny and Cher with all. I mean, it's just such a long list. And what's what's awesome about you, Gary, is your voice is so unique. You know, it's, it's actually rare 
as you know, in the world to hear a couple of notes from somebody and you know who that is. I mean, Willie Nelson has that. Sinatra has that. You have that as well. And that's, was that like you, you, I know you obviously grew up with that, but did you, did you ever kind of sit back and go, how did, did I have you, you recognize you have a unique style? I mean, did that, is that something that really hit you or you just kind of did what you did? And (laughs) I had no idea. I had no idea. I know it sounds funny, but it's, it's true though, because you're so known for that. That's kind of like my mom said, I had no idea that, that, that you were the only boy that could sing like that. I thought all seven and eight year olds could sing that way. You know, right. so I had no idea because it was natural and normal for me. I remember in high school being in choir and speech class and things like that, you know, and my teachers saying, you should go into radio. You have a voice. Right. For yeah, radio. Yeah, but that's true. Yeah, yeah. And they were talking about a speaking voice. Uh, sure. you know, my choir director was uh, saying, well, you should go into choir singing and, you know, that kind of stuff. You know, so mm. I, I just thought it was normal that I could sing like I sang. So I, I never thought of it as anything special. I just happened right. to be one of the guys in the band that could sing. And usually, because I always thought of myself as a rock and roller. I loved Elvis. Right. I loved Gene yeah. Vincent and the Blue Caps. I loved Eddie Cochran. I loved yeah, Chuck Berry, but we have Chuck a Chuck Berry, Berry story. But... <laughs> Little Richard, Fats Domino. Right. That was all my stuff, you know, and I always wanted to rock and roll. You know, yeah. that was in, and when we played the Stones and the Beatles, you know, it was, it was all about, she was just 17 right. you know, and all that. And even though in the, in the bands that I was in, like the trio, the other guys sang most of the rock. I sang the platters. Yeah. You, you sang know what Alice, I mean? the big songs. Yeah. You who God. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but it's hard. You know what the thing is? Like, I mean, I, I worked with Sonny Turner. I worked with a bunch of those guys. And like, it's hard to sing that stuff. And people hear those songs, or even like Young Girl and Woman, Woman, you hear those tunes and they're such big songs. And when you're, you know, you're singing those like you say, like you're on the road night after night, like you have to protect your voice because it's it's hard to sing that. You got to sing it full voice. You can't fake it, right? Here's a small confession. The other day we did a date um, <clears throat> in uh, Iowa mm-hmm. and the, uh, the casino owners and managers and everybody wanted me to come into a birthday party because there was a man that a part of the community they all loved and he was a terrific right. man. He was in his middle 80s or so. And he was dying of cancer. And they said, we're having a birthday party for him. And he's a huge fan of yours. And we want you to come in and say hello and all that kind of stuff. And I found myself going to the birthday party, you know, there's a certain amount of talking that was after sound check and all the stuff, the talking that you do. And, you know, you've been with with us a million times while we did the sound checks and all those things. And I go out with the sound guy and we have to talk about the sound because I always tell him, you're the expert. I just have some hints as to how we can sound the biggest and the best, you know, so I'm just going to give you clues as to balances and things. If I need a little tightening on the bass, I'll let you know, at any rate, and there was a whole line of people for the meet and greet at at 630 before the seven o'clock show. And they all want to tell a story. They all want to talk to you. They all (laughs) want you to answer. And by the time we got to the show, you know, I had been up since five thirty because that's been. And it's tough because you're you're a very nice guy and you always make an effort to do those things. But you're like you're thinking in the back of your mind, like I still got to sing tonight. <laughs> that's right, and and it's tough. Yeah. And the show went great. I used to I used to get part. to be the bad guy. <laughs> yeah, but but at some point in the show, I started to lose the top end of my voice because right. I had spent 
most of my energy talking to people. So anyway, I try to protect myself from speaking too much during the day so that I can. Yeah, it's hard. You know, when I mean, as we know, like touring, I think when I was working with you, we were doing like 12 or something, 12, 15 dates a month, which is a lot. And it's tough because I can play tired, but singing tired is, is different. And then, like I said, on your tunes, you can't just coast. You really have to do it. You have to bring it. Exactly true. Where were we anyway? I was, uh, we were talking about what, um, Oh, you're just talking about, yeah, the, um, doing the, uh, the gig and, and meet and greets and losing your voice. <laughs> well, after that, we were, before that, we were talking about, uh, the band and, uh, I don't know. I kind of lost track of where we were. That's okay. Um, actually, and I wanted to ask you, um, so you obviously, you guys had the hits. You were meeting a lot of interesting people. You have a really interesting story about Elvis that that you used to always tell. And I, I know you've met a lot of really interesting folks, but the Elvis thing, I know you were a big, huge fan of Elvis. Mm. Can you tell me how that happened, how you how you ended up meeting him? And I just recall back, you know, when I think it was around 1955 when he really started to get noticed, you know, and that was really kind of before his big hits and all that, you know, and I was aware right. of train I ride, you know, I was aware of when my blue moon turns to gold again, old. Yeah. Show. And he was on Ed Sullivan and that was kind of happening. And it was starting to get going and all that. And right. when, when heartbreak hotel hit and don't be cruel. And I, I remember, you know, being on my streets, you know, I was growing up in Yakima Valley. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, I, but, but I loved it. And I was, I just was always looking for that next Elvis song that I could hear. In fact, my very first album, when my dad brought home a, a, a hi-fi from the department store. Yeah. Um, it sounded amazing. The yep. tubes and the. <laughs> yeah. It was a beautiful sound. My parents had one. Yeah. And my very first long playing album was Elvis. The one where he's got his hair pompadoured and he's got a guitar and, He's handsome, you know, and there's a, you know, a pose that's a vibe, you know, and all that. Yeah. And I just, you know, I, I would sit in front of that high five for hours listening to that. And so um, time goes by. And of course, uh, you know, in my shows and things, I would do some Elvis tunes. And I always loved his rock and roll the best, you know, little sister, don't you. All the rockabilly stuff. Yeah, that stuff always, you know, knocked me out. So. Like I said, I always thought of myself as going on to be a rock and roller. But years later, when the success happened and uh, we were working in Las Vegas, which brings back some thoughts right now about working in the lounges, they like to call them, even though they were good sized venues. Yeah, there were showrooms back then, right? Well, almost every showroom, but each hotel had a showroom that seated two, two to 3,000 people. And that's where Elvis performed at the International. I worked in the lounge that seated a thousand with right, I can Tina Turner and um, Red Fox, you know, so we started <laughs> our shows at midnight after Elvis had done his one or two shows, you know, in the big room. So um, it, it, it was an exciting time because I remember going to hang out with the Everly brothers at their lounge. You know, I remember going to see Jerry Lee Lewis and, um, hanging out with who i don't know who else but but others yeah, just all these legends people that you grew up listening to and then all of a yeah. sudden you're like sharing stages with them right it's crazy yeah and actually going and hanging out at the bar with them afterwards and things of that right nature. so it was it, it it was kind of eye-opening in its own way you know but uh we were working at the international and um 
it was that very instance where we were working at the Icantina and Red Fox and Elvis was in the big room and I had watched the hotel be built in 1955. I think it was right. on, on uh, whatever it, it was going to be Disneyland thing, you know, I don't know. And right. So there he is Elvis in his hard hat and he's walking around, you know, because that was going to be his home, <laughs> you know? So right, right. I thought I, I got to meet this guy. I got to tell him what the music meant to me, how much I really loved his voice, his vibe, his whole, his whole trip, you know, and I thought he's too famous. There's probably no way I'll ever meet him. Turns out I was one of his favorite singers. Oh, wow. And I did not know that. I found that right. much later from Priscilla in her book. Um, Roy Orbison was number one. I know that Tom Jones was up there. Yeah. I think she's. Uh, I mean, that's a, that's a great crowd to be included in. It's oh, amazing singers. I, I am so honored by all of that. You know, I still sort of pinch myself to think that that could be the case, right. you know, um, because I'm thinking he's too famous and, and he'll never come out. And so I'm walking down the hallway. I'm going to go to my room toward the elevators. And here he comes with his entourage. But he's in the middle, all covered up by all these tall guys and shoulders. Right. Yeah, he's got his Memphis Mafia guys. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I thought, these guys aren't tourists. You can tell there's no cameras. You know? <laughs> there's no Asians in there. There's no, uh, you know, yeah. they're, they're all, uh, they're, they, they look like musicians. You know? So I said, excuse me. And I stopped in front of them and they parted. And uh, I kind of went uh, to myself, wow, here I am. I'm looking straight at the king. You know, I just said, hi, Elvis, I'm Gary Puckett. And he looked at me and he said, yeah, man, I know. I, you know, oh, wow. and so then my brain started going really fast you know? <laughs> like, I and I started know. thinking it's back funny. to those dates. Yeah, go ahead. Right. Yeah, I was going to say, it's funny when you meet people like that, your idols, and you're kind of like, I have so much to say. I don't know where to start. <laughs> yeah. It's like, it's overwhelming, right? Exactly. And, you know, he, uh, I, I went back to that high five. I went back to that first 33 and a third long playing right. record. And, and I, you know, my brain is, is reliving Heartbreak Hotel. I want you, I need you, I love you, you know, and I'm just going, well, we talked 20 minutes and I tell the audiences to this day, I have no idea what we said, right? Because my brain was elsewhere. It was thinking about the memories and things, you know, and <clears throat> so at any rate, um, um, he said, I'm going to come to your show tonight. And I remember thinking, no, he's not really. Cool. Yeah, you're like, sure. He's just being nice. <laughs> just being a nice guy, you know? Yeah. Um, so we parted company. And that night, actually, I did get a message from the maitre d' that uh, said that he was there. And I wanted to tell the people that he was there. But I, you know, realized in the moment that the show would be done. If be, I did. You'd be so done. <laughs> exactly. I waited till it was over. And I said, ladies and gentlemen, I'm, I can't tell you how pleased I am that Elvis is here tonight. And they used to sit him whenever he'd come to a show right by the door. He'd wear black and they'd put him in a booth that was all dressed in black and the doorway was not lit, you know, so that he could sneak out if, if he felt like he was going to be attacked by the crowd or whatever. So right. when I said that, he immediately got up and, you know, exited the room so he didn't get caught. But the maitre d' came to me and said, Elvis really loved your show. And, and he, wow. uh, you know, he was just really pleased and he's sorry that he couldn't come back. 
Yeah, that's, you know, it's, it's amazing. I mean, I, you know, and even for me too, like being with and doing music, I mean, I used to play with Frankie Avalon and he was somebody, same thing. Like I watched him on TV, thought the beach movies and, you know, Greece. And, and one day I'm, you know, I'm, I'm standing on stage with him and I'm thinking, how did this happen? <laughs> you know, or even with you, because of course I grew up listening to you too. And, and my parents were huge fans of your music. And, and it's funny how those things happen in life. It's, mm-hmm. it's almost like, you know, you have a little guardian angel that, that kind of parts the way for you to find your path. And, and we've always had a great relationship and we're, we're still good friends. Um, and it's nice to, it's nice to not only have the professional relationship, but when you meet people like, you know, like Elvis, or you meet people like that, where you have a personal connection, you know, like you say, hanging out with, with Ricky Nelson and hanging out with those guys and you realize they're just people. I mean, they're stars, people love them, but they're, but they're still humans, right? Absolutely. And, and I have, have memories that come back to me in what you're saying. I heard a knock at my hotel door one day. It was Ricky Nelson. He didn't know I was in the room. I think he was looking for somebody else. But as it turned out, you know, we went, oh, hey, you know, and we worked on the same show that night together and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, it's so much fun. Yeah. And I have a memory of uh, walking into Jerry Lee Lewis's dressing room one day when I was uh, doing sound check and we were on a show called, um, what was it called? It was uh, Love and Feelings, it was called, because oh. the very first one was with the Righteous Brothers. So they oh, wow. they dubbed the concert series Love and Feelings Concerts, right. you know, and I was doing it with uh, Jerry Lee, the Four Tops, uh, whoever else was on the show. And right. I just thought, I, I've got, I, I went into Jerry Lee's dressing room and I just sort of boldly walked in and I said, Jerry Lee, I'm Gary Puckett. I just got to tell you what a great fan I am of yours, you know, and uh, uh, I'm going to sit in with you tonight. <laughs> you don't know. It, but I'm gonna sit in. <laughs> I didn't think he would let me, but you know what? How funny. He did. He let me sit awesome, in. Man. And I, I stood on the stage thinking that very thing that you just said, how did this happen? You know, yeah. how did I get up here? You know, and his band was looking at me like, this is cool. This is cool. <laughs> We're playing, you know. Gary so, Puckett's jamming. Yeah, yeah, it's awesome. That's, that's, you know, that's so fun. I mean, like that, that's the fun of music, right? We, we, we do all the, we do all the flying, we do all the other stuff, the no sleep. But then when you get those moments, it's kind of like, okay, this is why I do this. It, it reminds you why you originally started, why you originally played in the clubs and, and doing all that stuff. Right. right. We've, we've both paid our dues. There's no doubt about it. <laughs> for sure. So what what's uh, coming up for you? You you guys have already started doing some shows. Obviously, last this past year we've had to deal with the COVID shutdown. Um, is that you guys have shows coming up? What what's what's happening in the near future for for you and the band? Well, unfortunately, we don't really have a lot of shows until the end of August and into September, October, November. Um, you know, we have the Golden Nugget on July the second because Las Vegas is opening up. You right. may be, you may be seeing that, and hopefully you'll be working a lot more uh, yeah. yourself. Uh, uh, but uh, let's see. There's there's only a few dates, honestly, through the summertime because people are still mm-hmm. concerned, still nervous. Uh, yeah, I think that the the news has scared everybody so badly that uh, you know we're all questioning the the vaccine we're running from the virus we're being forced to wear masks and social distance and i mean i've had covid i've had both my shots i can't give it i can't get it well even if i can get it you know i can't give it again you know what i mean right. yeah, yeah yeah so i don't know um 
Yeah, it's it's and you know promoters get nervous. It's all understandable. I I think you know yeah. What I'm seeing, I mean, I'm getting calls into next year, which is funny. People call me like, "Hey, are you available in April of 2022?" I'm like, "In fact, yes. I did that very thing with you." <laughs> well, you do that exactly. <laughs> our our bass guy directs the uh, choir at his church, and he yeah, would be there yeah. for uh, Easter. So right. he said, "Hey, do you think Craig would sit in for me?" You know, I said, "I think he probably would." Let me let me sound him. So yeah, I, I, that would be fun. Yeah, I, I probably good. I'm probably gonna have to go over the. Music. Music. It's been about what, like uh, 17 years? <laughs> it's been a while. Well, you ran away from us and went to uh, uh, the uh, the the circus yeah. du Soleil, you know. So. Yeah, I ran away. I ran away to the circus. Still think of you as my brother, though. <laughs> oh, I don't, likewise, absolutely. Um, Gary, how can people find you? You have your website, right? GaryPucketMusic.com. Yeah, that. Plus, we've got a fan page. It's it's the original Gary Puckett and the Unigap fan page. And awesome. I, I think I've got something going on Facebook as well, though I don't do Jamie Hillbolt, my keyboard guy, right. Is sort of the go-to guy in Austin for sound. Yeah. He's a, he's a computer genius too. Yeah, he really is. <laughs> yeah. He's in fact, he's a, he's a certified Apple technician. Right. Uh, uh, teacher. Yeah. So uh, very cool. Yeah, You've got a good, yeah. You've got a great band. That's actually so. It's Jamie Hillbolt, and then Woody. What's Woody's last name? Lingle. Lingle. That's right. Like and then Stingle drummer. Lingle. The drummer Mike lives here. Right? Mike Candido is in Vegas. Yeah. So we're we're from four different states, and it's hard to rehearse. But <laughs> they're they're a great hang. These guys. You know, we yeah. we all agree uh, spiritually. We agree politically. We agree yeah. brotherly. You know, we're we're a great hang we we love to hang together you know so awesome it's fantastic and as you know they are all very advanced musicians and yeah your show's great. your show's great like and the vocals are stellar everything it's it's such um and i know when, when i first started with you you had you had music on on a lot of music on recording or tracks your vocals were always live but you wanted to get away from that so now you've got the guys that you have now cover everything live and it's not easy i mean jamie's very busy the keyboard player because you have all this he has to cover all the string parts and singing and <laughs> but it sounds amazing and especially for for a four-piece band it's amazing the amount of the, the sound that you guys put out it's, well it's, it's thank, awesome thank you we uh we we sort of Every once in a while, take pride in that fact that we play and sing it all. It's nothing's on, on track yeah, or whatever. That's but, rare these days, yeah, as you know. I know. <laughs> but uh, awesome, Gary. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, we're gonna we're gonna put all of your links on our podcast description, and uh, the podcast is on all the major outlets. And we also released to our music pages in Europe, so they have seven million followers on Music Crowns in London and Bass and Guitar Live in Italy. So you have some new fans. <laughs> That'll be great. Well, please send all that stuff to Jamie as well. You've got his uh, yes, email and things. I mean, I could forward it to him or whatever, but if you just send it direct, he'll put it on our fan page and that'll end up getting on my website as well. I've got a awesome guy. Yeah. And then I look forward to seeing you here in Vegas in July. That the Golden Nugget here is a, is a great showroom for you guys. It's intimate and, and fun. Great, great, great place to see you. One of our favorite places to be. Awesome. Thank you so much, Gary. I really appreciate your time. All right, man. I love you. Love you too. <laughs> I'll talk to you soon. Thanks a lot. Thanks for joining us and please consider subscribing to our podcast and follow us on our social media pages for guest announcements.